Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. Joining me again today is Dr. Kevin Freitas. As you might remember from Monday, Kevin is a doctor of physical therapy. He's board certified in neurology through the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties. He's got extensive experience working with patients in neurological rehab settings, home health, pediatrics, and more. And again, I met him through, uh, he was teaching me a lot in our neuromuscular physical therapy course at a college and he kind of shared a lot of awesome knowledge insight and wisdom with me over the course of the semester i've been really thankful for that and i'm really thankful that he's given us the time now to come on the show and kind of talk about some of the things that we've talked about extensively throughout the semester so with that kevin welcome back to the show thank you so much thanks for having me so when it comes to different neurological neurological conditions disorders there's been pretty high prevalence in a lot of these uh, disorders that they're not really getting a whole lot of attention. Most people don't know that the prevalence of stroke, TBI, and uh, spinal cord injury is in the millions. And in a country of three or 400 million people, that's kind of alarming. And those numbers continue to increase. So just kind of starting off, do you treat any neurological disorders like that? Or what are some of the different disorders and diseases that you've been able to treat so far? Oh, uh, quite a few. The, the three <laughs> you mentioned, uh, uh, stroke, spinal cord, brain injury, um, MS, Parkinson's, um, Alzheimer's. Uh, so uh, quite, a, quite a bit yeah. yeah, quite a array there. And like I said, too, these numbers tend to be increasing the prevalence. More and more people are presenting with these disorders. Uh, any idea as to why that might be? Well, I think, uh, you know, people are living longer than they were, say, you know, a thousand years ago. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, the body, you know, breaks down, um, you know, and that and, you know, I think, life physically is a little easier for us now than, you know, maybe it was a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, to, we have all kinds of apps on our phone to unlock the door or, you know, just see who's at the door. So you don't even have to go there or, you know, change the channel on the television is just, uh, you know, with a remote. So I think uh, we, we don't have to, physically do as much as we used to and yep. possibly maybe that contributes no i think you're spot on with saying that and i'm glad you brought that up um, i've been a big fan of what i like to call rewilding yourself uh, so there's this kind of belief now that humans as a species are kind of becoming domesticated in a way so you know you think back ancestrally thousands of years ago we didn't have things like air conditioning and heat on demand. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have stoves. We didn't have grocery stores. So if you wanted something, there was a lot of physical labor and physical demand required. If you wanted food, you either went hunting or you went out and started foraging and gathering. If you wanted to cook whatever you got to eat, you're going to have to build a fire. If you want to stay warm, you have to build a fire. If you want to be protected, you have to build a shelter. You can't just have someone go and build you a house um, or buy a house for that matter. So it's kind of interesting how we've seen this shift from you know how humans as a species lived for thousands and thousands of years into a more 
I, again, I'll use the word domesticated type of setting. And all of a sudden we see these disorders and diseases start to increase. And again, we're not entirely sure why that is. Like you said, maybe it's due to aging. We've got a lot of advancements in modern medicine. People are living a lot longer now than they were back then. Maybe we've had a history of these diseases and disorders, but we didn't have a way of tracking it. We didn't always have things like CT scans, MRI. We didn't always have the ability to do advanced blood work and blood samples. Uh, so it's kind of hard to figure out why the prevalence is increasing. And I think you kind of alluded to that quite a bit there. Um, it's kind of multifactorial. So, but the one thing that we kind of both touched on is fitness and exercise is good. And that's something that people aren't getting as much of right now. People are less physically active. So from your experience working with patients who have neurological disorders, how have you found regular exercise and activity to benefit them? Oh my goodness. It's, it's, uh, it's just a, a, a huge topic. Um, you know, we've seen people um, get stronger, um, not only improve the quantity of what they can do, but also the quality. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really, um, at the end of the day, that's really served to improve their quality of life. Um, and that's, that's really what, what, what they're shooting for. Right, for sure. Being able to, kind of like you said on Monday, it requires a lot of hard work. And if you're willing to work hard, then you're able to return to a pretty good level of function, regardless of what your diagnosis is. Uh, I've seen videos online of patients who have spinal cord injury, and they're lifting weights. They're in the gym, they're going out and doing things like skiing. Uh, it's really amazing how the sky is the limit for pretty much any patient population, not just neurological patients or patients with neurological disorders. But if you work hard, you can pretty much do anything, it seems physically. Um, and that's where exercise really comes in, I think. You know, I, I would agree with you 100% in that, um, you know, physical activity does serve to uh, improve strength um, and oftentimes quality of life. Now, you know, I, I would say, however, though, that, you know, not everyone, for example, who has, say, a spinal cord injury, not everyone, unfortunately, is going to go back to, you know, walking um, as they did prior to their, their injury. Um, but yes, there, there are definitely things that most all with a neurological impairment can do to improve their quality of life. Right. And I like how you bring that up. Not everyone gets to the same level. Some patients might return to walking. Some patients, they might just regain the ability to cook a meal for themselves and eat. And, you know, again, that's empowering type of stuff. If you lose the ability to button your shirt or get dressed independently, or even just something as simple as eating, and you can't do that, and you're fully dependent on someone else to be able to regain the ability to do something so simple like that can be really empowering, I think. And exactly, exactly right. And that goes back to what we were talking about for quality of life. You mm -hmm. know? So. For sure. Now, there's been some discussion uh, in the literature, in the news, that exercise can kind of help prevent 
uh, prevent or reverse uh, the kind of prevalence of neurological disorders, kind of slow the progression or prevent them entirely in individuals who might be at risk. Um, have you kind of seen or heard of anything similar to that or not so much? Well, in um, occupationally, the people I work with, they've, uh, it's really more post uh, neurological impairment. Right. Um, however, uh, you're absolutely right. As far as the research goes, uh, we know that people who exercise, who partake in vigorous, but tolerable um, exercise on a regular basis, are without a doubt um, at decreased risk for stroke uh, compared to those who don't get that same physical activity. Right, right, because stroke is often linked to things like hypertension. And from the exercise standpoint, if you're doing endurance exercise, for example, that benefits your heart health, well, the healthier your heart, the healthier your uh, blood vessels are, I would imagine the less likely you are to have a stroke because the stroke is almost like a cardiovascular complication that impacts the brain. Um, and yes. I'd even go as far to lump in something like Alzheimer's or dementia in there as well. Uh, I think Alzheimer's is getting the phrase type three diabetes uh, in a lot of research and educational and news type settings uh, because there's a huge role that blood sugar levels play in causing some of these diseases. And a lot of that right now is correlational data. So we aren't 100% sure if that's correct. That's kind of where we're leaning though. And I think individuals who exercise have been found to kind of live healthier lives throughout everything, whether it be healthy eating or just lifestyle habits in general. Um, so I do think it's really interesting how the activity level of someone can kind of help reduce their risk and chance of developing uh, some of these neurological conditions. I agree with you. Um, the other thing to note is that, you know, we've, I've mentioned stroke before, so I'll stay with that example. Yep. Is that some people, um, you know, say they're they have other risk factors of having a stroke that are beyond their control. For example, both their parents had a stroke that puts them at increased risk. Mm -hmm. However, uh, and it doesn't, if they exercise a lot, it doesn't mean that they won't have a stroke, but you know, even if they do, then chances are that the work that they've put in thus far uh, can greatly benefit their um, recovery. For example, if you have someone who's um, you know, exercised a lot and has a, you know, um, they don't have, um, they're not obese, uh, mm -hmm. compared to someone who is, um, or I'm sorry, someone who is not, um, they might be able to post-stroke move themselves a little bit better. And in, in therapy, we talk about a strength to weight ratio. Mm -hmm. So all I'm saying is that those who are fit pre-stroke might have a better outcome because they can move better post-stroke. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and kind of going devil's advocate now, I'd say there's possibly some cases where increased activity could increase your risk for some um, types of neurological disorders. Not many, but I would think possibly spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury, specifically concussion. 
Uh, you don't often hear about someone getting a concussion from sitting on their couch watching Netflix. However, you hear about it more in like the athletic population, people who are playing a sport, people who are active, people who have regular kind of physical contact. So just kind of thinking it's kind of a double-edged sword in some senses, but again, the benefits, I think clearly outweigh the risks of, you know, getting a concussion or minor head contusion compared to living a healthy and active and strong lifestyle. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I can, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so with that too, the patients who have uh, neurological disorders or any kind of disease that way, we've talked before about how they exercise, they do activity, uh, but that kind of looks different for each of them. Uh, and with that too, you're not taking them into a gym and doing, you know, four sets of 10 bicep curls for the most part. So what does exercise look like for a patient who has a neurological disorder? What are kind of some of the interventions that you use for some of them? You know, that's such a difficult question to answer. Because, <laughs> you know, every, you know, different people present differently. Even those, uh, you could have two different people with the same diagnosis and they mm -hmm. still might uh, present differently. For example, multiple sclerosis, um, you know, two, some person could have weakness in one set of muscles and another person could have weakness in a different set of muscles. So it's, it's difficult to answer. Yep. However, um, by and large, I, I think a lot of times we try and focus on, you know, some of that aerobic activity. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be some people who, uh, for example, maybe they walk with a little bit more of a flexed posture or, or stooped posture. And we might try and do um, some exercise targeting the extensors or, you know, the calves and quads and, and butt muscles to help and, and, you know, some back muscles to help them stand up uh, as best as they can. Uh, so uh, it, it really depends on, on how, how people present post-injury. Post right. But it sounds like no matter how they present, the general trend is functional types of activities and returning to a good level of function and as best a level of function as they can, the patient can get to and working in some of that aerobic capacity kind of like you said and I think that's kind of something we often miss um, you know even people who go to the gym not a whole lot of people like doing cardio there's some people who do but for the most part especially in physical therapy uh, we often miss that cardiovascular side of things. We often think function, 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 strengthen this, stretch that, but we don't often think maybe they just need to be able to get to the point where they can walk independently for five minutes. Um, so I think that's really cool that you bring that up and kind of, again, tying back to the stroke example, heart health is key for helping to prevent strokes. So if someone just had a stroke, getting them up and moving is probably going to help them a lot more than, you know, them laying in bed for hours and hours. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. They, um, you know, we, we try and get people up and moving. Um, that's often their goal as well. Um, and we try and do that more than say, just having them sit and exercise. Um, it just tends to work out better for them. For sure. Now we've 
talked about exercise. We've talked about some of the different patient populations that you've worked with. Are there any kind of unique patient diagnoses that you've worked with and any kind of unique interventions that you've had to kind of come up with for them? Maybe, maybe not too much research or evidence in advance, more maybe something rare. Um, so I'll give you an example. One of my clinical rotations, I worked with a patient who had corticobasal degeneration, which is a rare neurological disorder that involves destruction, autoimmune destruction of the cortex and basal ganglia areas in the brain. So the person, the patient was able to mentally, they were all there. It's just, they were slowly losing their ability to do motor planning and motor coordination type tasks. So a lot of our interventions were focused on core strengthening and core stability and overall movement coordination because she was kind of losing the ability to coordinate different movements uh, such as tying tying her shoes even, buttoning a button. Um, so that was one where we kind of had to come up with interventions on the spot um, and we didn't really know there wasn't a whole lot of research saying, you know, this is what you should do for this patient. There wasn't any clinical practice guideline per se. It was just kind of your expertise in the moment. What does this patient need? Um, so I'm curious to hear, have you ever worked with patients who have any kind of unique uh, diagnosis like that where you don't really have a whole lot to go on other than your expertise? And what did you end up doing? Uh, less common diagnoses that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, maybe like, you know, fragile X. Could you talk a little bit about fragile X a little bit? That's a, that's a new one. I'm not overly familiar with that. Well, that was a long time ago. Um, and I've had, you know, other, um, less, you know, uh, you know, uncommon things. Um, it was, uh, un, un, it was a pediatric situation. Um, mm -hmm. it uh, affects males. Um, and, it's just a um, neurological syndrome. Yep. Uh, so oftentimes, you know, these kids will have PTOT in speech. Um, and it's a, it's a really unfortunate diagnosis, um, but it does exist. So um, yeah, anyway, I'm, I apologize for not coming up with uh, some unique treatment strategies for unique diagnoses. No, you're good. Um, Fragile X is a very interesting one. And like you said, it's mostly in children. Um, and it's more, collect, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of an intellectual disability with some kind of physical structural um, changes in the, yeah. in the anatomy that um, we, we kind of tend to see with uh, pediatric neurological diagnoses, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a genetic component too, I think. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely a unique one. Um, and I think that brings up a big point too, is just because we're talking about neurological disorders, doesn't mean it all falls into this big bucket of stroke MS or brain injury, spinal cord injury. There's a lot out there and it doesn't always impact the same population. So males might be more at risk for one thing. Females might be more at risk for one thing. You might be more at risk to have a stroke when you're older. You might be more at risk to get something else when you're younger. Um, so just because you're at a certain point in your lifespan doesn't mean you're like exempt from 
all these different neurological things that we're talking about. It can really impact anyone at any time. It's kind of anyone's guess. True. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But on the bright side, regardless of what diagnosis someone has or you know whatever their state is, they have the ability to recover to some extent. And we credit a lot of that with this kind of 10 cent term we call neuroplasticity, which is kind of a new field. We don't know a whole lot about it yet, but what we do know is really exciting. So when we hear the term neuroplasticity, what does that make you think of, Kevin? What, is, what exactly is neuroplasticity? Well, neuroplasticity really means that, um, you know, after uh, a neurological insult, um, so let's say, for example, um, you know, someone has a traumatic brain injury and part of the brain, unfortunately, you know, those, those brain cells are so specialized, they're very sensitive and they just don't regenerate like some other cells in our body. Mm -hmm. And um, when those cells pass away, um, neuroplasticity kicks in and the information that used to be conveyed through those cells um, is theoretically uh, carried in other routes. Um, and therefore, and because of this, uh, we're able to do quite a bit of rehabilitation uh, in an effort to get people better. Uh, so a practical example of that is someone who has a, a brain injury. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they um, can't sequence uh, putting a shirt on. And because the area of the brain, areas of the brain that help with uh, that are no longer functioning properly. But over time, through practice and, and therapy, um, different areas of the brain can take over and they may improve with doing that skill or another skill, say, you know, walking or brushing their teeth, mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, I, I like how you brought that up. It's basically, you know, we lost the ability to do something like we normally do. So think about it like, um, say you're going to drive from home to work and the route you always take, uh, the roads washed out, whether it's, you know, flood or a bridge is out or whatever, you can't go the way you normally do. So you have to take a detour. And I think neuroplasticity is kind of your brain and your body's way of taking a neurological detour, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, going around the path that it normally takes to do something and finding a new way to still get to the same point, so to speak. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. But with that, neuroplasticity is not just limited to individuals who have had a, a neurological disorder. The brain is always listening, so to speak. It's always learning and adapting to the stimuli you provide to it. Um, and I think a great example of that is just kind of what you tell yourself on a daily basis through self-talk. You know, if you get up out of bed and you say, all right, I'm awake, I'm not tired, I'm just going to go after it and grind through my day, you're probably going to be a lot more awake and alert and enthusiastic throughout the day than someone who says, you know, they get out of bed and they're like, well, I didn't sleep great. My back kind of hurts. This aches. I don't really want to get out of bed. I'll just roll back over for two or three more hours. The kind of self-talk and internal dialogue that you have with yourself 
really can kind of make or break how the rest of your day goes and how you live your life. And I'm not sure if that technically falls under neuroplasticity or if that falls under something different. But I mean, bottom line is the brain is always listening. The brain is always learning and adapting to what our life gives it. Uh, it's subconscious, subconscious, you can't really control it for the most part. You know, there's, there's really nothing in this universe like the brain. Um, mm -hmm. It's just fascinating. And we still don't understand how it all works and may never. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's always working in one way or the other. It's always, there's always processing going on. Even, you know, you know, we go to sleep, but we still have dreams and that, that brain is functioning. Right. And I mean, there's a whole school of thought on what dreams mean and interpretation of them, because it's kind of our brain's way of trying to tell us something. But the question is, what is that? And, you know, that's kind of anyone's guess, because like, like you said, there's nothing quite like the brain. And even though we have such advanced imaging modalities, we have advanced um, all kinds of diagnostic information we can gather about the brain. We've got people who have spent their lives studying it. We're still so clueless about it as an organ and what it does. And it's kind of crazy to think, you know, the ability to think was able to take a person from Earth and put them on the moon. We've been able to go underwater through submarines and all kinds of different technology and explore areas that we never could by ourselves. And somehow we still can't really understand what gave us the knowledge and the ability to do all those things. It's uh, it just kind of seems kind of ironic to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so with that, with the brain kind of always listening and always learning, obviously we've talked about, we use a lot of motor learning strategies in neurological in patients with neurological disorders to kind of help them relearn what they're doing uh, through that neuroplasticity. Now, how could we potentially apply neuroplasticity and the concept of the brain is always learning, adapting and finding new ways to do something to maybe a more general population, whether it's, you know, your general run of the mill average American, or maybe a high level athlete or fitness enthusiast, or maybe someone who has some type of other impairment? Well, that's a pretty broad question. <laughs> uh, you know, I've never worked with high-level athletes. Uh, however, I imagine, um, you know, any exposure to uh, some type of motor learning where uh, someone is exposed to uh, some type of activity, and then given that knowledge of performance and knowledge of results so they can fine tune and triangulate back to um, you know, how they specifically want to do that technique um, you know, would be beneficial and take advantage of motor learning and neuroplasticity. Uh, for example, you know, just that just constantly working on that free throw shot or mm -hmm maybe a gymnast who is working their dismount off a bar and they start into a foam pit and then the mat is put on the pit and then, you know, a bunch of mats on the ground. Um, so just triangulating back to whatever that goal is um, through experience and 
the brain being able to analyze that experience and getting the feedback from you know the knowledge of performance and results um, be it from videotape or um, a coach's um, reminders or cues yeah this also sounds like a huge potential for something like biofeedback so kind of providing someone with some kind of subjective number whether it be heart rate or um we, we use a blood pressure cuff even sometimes for something like deep cervical flexor activation um, and kind of using these alternative methods to help people learn new strategies to do things. Um, I, I'd say even elite athletes don't always have the best mechanics and strategies in what they do. Um, we, you know, you can pull up a football game, basketball game, whatever. I guarantee you someone on that court, on that field is going to demonstrate improper movement. It might not be causing them issues at that point, but if you're someone who's working with someone like that, if you can do things to kind of reteach them how to move and move more effectively and efficiently, it can really be a game changer for them, even at an elite level. Um, and I like how you brought up practice too. It's not just something that, you know, you're going to do once or twice and the brain's going to magically relearn how to do this. It's going to take a lot of repetitions. Um, I think we use what the 10,000 hour, 10,000 rep rule for mastery and like 20 hour rule for like starting. Um, so you need to get like 20 hours in order to kind of start to relearn that new strategy, but 10,000 to make it stick permanently. I mean, you think about how many repetitions and how much practice you get in that time. It's, it's kind of crazy to think about. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And you talk about fine tuning technique and certainly this is where pitching coaches and golf swing coaches uh, really come into play um, because they're looking at things, you know, down to inches or even less um, and how they want this motor skill performed. For sure. Um, and I mean, we're kind of just brushing the surface here with neuroplasticity, but have you found any good resources or any kind of direction you would point someone to learning more about neuroplasticity or is there anything that you found has been helpful for kind of giving you an understanding of what exactly that concept is? I'll be honest with you, the best example of an illustration of the concept of neuroplasticity is just working with these patients and seeing them improve. Mm -hmm. uh, it's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, and, and, and I'll be honest, you know, not everyone has great outcomes, um, but those who uh, work hard and are motivated and sometimes have a little bit of luck, um, uh, uh, some of them can do quite well. Um, For sure. And I'm, and I'm not saying that everyone who works hard is going to get back to their baseline after a neurological insult or injury. Um, you know, that's, that may not always be realistic. However, um, neuroplasticity plays a huge role in what we do and people have absolutely benefited, uh, from the concept. For sure. And, uh, I'll admit, maybe I'm a little biased in that we talked a lot about exercise and neuroplasticity, but there's other ways to kind of train your brain 
so to speak. Um, so I know that even like a game like Tetris has been used in different research studies uh, because it requires your brain to kind of think and learn from the failure and the failed decisions it makes in order to keep playing the game. Uh, obviously, learning a new language can be really good for both gray and white matter in the brain. Um, there's benefits with music, travel, uh, art therapy. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get this done. We talked about that on Monday. There's a thousand ways to skin a cat. And just because we kind of get biased towards exercise because that's what we do doesn't mean there's not other alternative options to start training the brain out there. You know, there's so many different different activities that can be beneficial uh, for the brain. Um, and you're absolutely right that in order for that brain to learn and grow and adapt, it needs stimuli. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of those things you touched upon, whether it be, you know, art, music, um, those are great, great benefits. For sure. And I like how you said it needs stimuli. Um, I'll kind of ask you this, is there ever a time when you feel that the brain can get overstimulated? So maybe the environment that someone is in is just too much for them to handle at that time. There's too much going on and they kind of need to step back, maybe a little more quiet space, quiet area. You know, that's a great question. And, and the answer is absolutely. We, we, had, we discussed an example of brain injury earlier and there are some people post brain injury um, they can only handle so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if too much is going on, um, they won't be able to process everything. And uh, they could either get either kind of check out or could get upset. Who knows? Um, another example, um, I was working with a lady this week who she, uh, she had a, has a diagnosis of Parkinson's and she's only able to attend to really one thing at a time. So when she's walking uh, and she's focusing on her feet and where to place them, you know, she does pretty well, mm -hmm. but you get her in a crowded room or even if she's walking down the hall and she looks up, uh, she'll stop walking. Um, and she kind of loses the ability to uh, focus on the task at hand. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. So is there, obviously you can reduce the amount of stimuli someone uh, is receiving to a certain extent. So if you're in a controlled setting, like a therapy gym, you can uh, change like the lighting. You can, you know, if there's music playing, you can shut the music off. Uh, there's going to be a limited number of people in the therapy gym. It's not going to be, you know, super busy, like say a grocery store might be. Uh, like, you know, Target or something like that. Um, so is there ever a time where the brain kind of just needs to reset itself, so to speak, like take a rest and take a minute? Yeah, um, going again back to the brain injury, um, you know, sometimes these patients, they'll require, you know, more rest um, mm -hmm. and it's just their brain healing. Um, and you know, so we'll allow them that time to rest uh, in bed. Um, or the lady who I gave the example of with walking, uh, we might start with her in a more quiet environment, um, you know, so I won't take her in the gym. And then theoretically, it, it would be good to 
reintroduce those tasks and start with a more busy environment. And sometimes we can do that. And sometimes that neuroplasticity isn't there sufficient to um, fully achieve that goal, mm -hmm. uh, which happens. Uh, but um, we certainly, we certainly try. Yeah, for sure. So with that, Kevin, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about exercise as it relates to uh, patients with neurological diseases and disorders or the concepts of motor learning and neuroplasticity? Yeah, I think, uh, I think just similar to what we touched upon earlier in that neuroplasticity is uh, so vitally important to what we do. Um, we need to uh, expose our patients to that stimuli mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, fine tune and triangulate um, to the task that is their goal. Uh, again, our goals are their goals. Um, and once we get some of what we're looking for, it's not just about the quantity, but also the quality. Um, mm -hmm. We ideally we want perfect practice, and you know we're not we're not always able to achieve perfect. Um, but neuroplasticity allows us to over time, uh, with effort, uh, fine tune things, uh, and I think that's just such a benefit to our patients. For sure, and being able to make those mistakes and correct yourselves, correct yourself, and get back to what we want to be training that perfect movement and perfect training repetitively. That's, uh, that's powerful stuff, especially having the ability to correct when things go wrong and return to that kind of motion or movement that we're trying to really train and target. Um, so that's really powerful stuff. And like you said, we're still learning a lot more about this, but it's an exciting area of neuromuscular intervention. And it's kind of, like we said, the sky's the limit with it. You can work hard and kind of make anything possible. So Kevin, thank you so much for your time and for this discussion. This has been really awesome stuff. And I think we've kind of made some great points. So thank you again. It's my pleasure. And I really appreciate your time. So for those listening, make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, just to make sure you don't miss out on any of our upcoming episodes. We've gotten awesome series of guests lined up all summer long for you to listen to. And if you wouldn't mind, leave a review, especially if you're listening on iTunes and share the episode, uh, share your favorite episodes with your friends, whether it be on social media, text message, whatever you use best. Uh, so with that, thanks again for listening and uh, we'll see you next week.